Is it possible for churches to repair a deeply divided nation? We're talking with Alan Hilton in today's episode. He is a biblical scholar, minister, and speaker. He is also the founder and leader of House United, an organization seeking to bring people together for the common good. He's calling his most recent book a manifesto for the House United movement. The book is called A House United, How the Church Can Save the World. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. So you set this up a bit in the introduction to your book, describing letters um, from Karl Barth to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Can you explain a little bit of that? Yeah, do you know, I, I remember reading in a Bonhoeffer biography a while back uh, that when he went to minister in London, uh, 1933, I think, um, He's he's in London and enjoying this kind of pastoral life while Hitler is gaining in Germany. And uh, and Bart writes to him and says, I'm glad you're having a nice time, but come home. Your church is on fire. Mm. And uh, Bonhoeffer didn't respond immediately, but Bart's plea is sort of what I'm trying to issue in the book. Uh, sort of we don't see that the flames are high or at least in the way that they're high. But it seems to me in these harsh times, the church is called to become a peacemaking, uh, community-building mission, in a way. So why do you believe that modern America is so segmented? Yeah, we we have this natural tilt. Um, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, is a great study of how we got this way Mm -hmm. evolutionarily, uh, just by genetics and nature. In it, he he accesses scholars from evolutionary psychology and social biology. He's a psychologist, he's correct? A, he's a moral psychologist, a moral which psychologist. is a, there aren't many of those, I think. Um, just kidding. The, um, <laughs> the, yeah, he's a moral psychologist now at NYU, used to be at the University of Virginia. And uh, and he he gathered info because he couldn't figure out why uh, John Kerry had lost to George Bush in 2004, and he was a, a liberal at the time, and he wanted to understand how conservatives and differ and, and liberals differ from one another, and so he did the research and specifically political political liberals yeah, and conservatives, right, right, and and there are there are there's a relationship between that and and theological liberal and and conservative, but he was looking at political. He's Mm -hmm. an agnostic. And and it turned him into a centrist because he read and found the origins of conservativeness and and liberalness weren't the choice of bad or good people. They were, he's he's done recent research uh, showing that twins divided at, at birth uh, show signs that their political orientation is genetic and not simply a choice or a socialized thing. And Really? That's yeah. fascinating. And he hints at that in the, in the Righteous Mind book, but he, he develops it in this newer book. And, and so I, he traces out the fact that we are groupish people. We, we tend to want to find our group and then be superior to the other group because at some point in evolutionary history, it became advantageous to say, okay, you guard the food, I'll go get more. And uh, in that, even the fittest individual who was carrying the backpack couldn't keep up uh, because the, the, the one who had somebody guarding food at home had advantages. And so we became groupish and we became very good at, uh, at defining and recognizing our group. 
but at the same time, we became very good at defining and recognizing outgroups and the they in our lives. So on some level, all humanity is built that way. Right. And this us-them dynamic. Yeah. We're the Hoosiers or we're the, whatever the, whatever the, the defining tribal identity is, mm-hmm. that's us. And then all the others, we kind of group together in some way. That's general humanity. But in the 80s and 90s of the 1900s, um, we took it up a step. Because you have to ask, okay, if all humanity has been divided in this way and all humanity tends to do this, why at this point in the American history, why do we put this on steroids? How did it get that our, our current division uh, polarization is the highest since the Civil War? Right? How did we do that and, and what led to it? And it happens that some media moves happened in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Fairness Doctrine in, in radio disappeared. So suddenly Rush Limbaugh was on one channel and a little, uh, a little more slowly to get there, uh, progressives were on another mm-hmm. channel rather than equal And before that, they would have been on the but, same. Well, they had to be by some dictate. Now, yeah. it eroded over time, but that's kind of a landmark in the, mm-hmm. in the mid-80s. Um, then in the 90s, MSNBC and Fox News were formed in the same year. Mm-hmm. And so rather than that good old point-counterpoint that uh, happened in the 60s and 70s and 80s where two people would argue it out on, on one stage on the same network, suddenly they were arguing from two different networks and they were speaking to two different audiences. And so we became echo chambers. We, mm-hmm. we started to find our news rather than the news. Yeah. And that produced more and more division and less and less possibility of understanding one another. Well, and it seems that even when two people now do get on the same stage who disagree from one another, um, they they simply talk past each other and discredit one another versus engaging one another. Yeah, it's an attempt at tribal victory rather than an attempt to build something bigger through the two perspectives, Mm -hmm. right, which which we'll get back to, I'm sure. But... um, yeah, it's it's a everybody has always wanted to win arguments. Right. But now there's a sense that they're both playing a role and they have to play out that role rather than think as they talk. So it's the theatrics of the thing. Yeah. Rather it's than uh, angertainment, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's uh we're going to fight and you're going to like it. It's it's uh, a cage match in political mm-hmm. terms, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And people do eat it up. They do. They do. We're, we're... Ratings are high, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you share in the book also some of your own journey yeah. uh, through various contexts. So um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. And yes, how yes. that relates. I'm interested specifically in how that relates to polarization and the ways in which we're divided from each other. Yeah. So everyone now knows that we're polarized and articles are everywhere. But I saw it a long time ago and it's because I'm a I'm a product of a mixed background, theologically and politically. Um, I come from nominal United Methodist family, and then I have a conversion experience in the evangelical world of young life. How old were you? I was sophomore in high school and started to go into a Church of Christ Bible study. We began to get a group of Christians in my high school who did a concert at an Assemblies of God church um, 
I had close Mennonites friends. We did midnight mass at the Catholic Church. And so I was, I think I was involved in, my first drink of alcohol was communing at the Lutheran Church, and I didn't expect it, and, and it kind of knocked me over I bet backwards. that was jarring. Yeah, it was. And so, uh, so I I'm, I'm, have my feet in 15 different churches, and the thing that later dawned on me about that experience is every one of them was trying to get it right. Right? There wasn't a single body of believers anywhere that I was a part of, and they were very different from one another. That's really unique for how young you were. Well, I didn't know it yet. I just oh. It was kind of the water I swam in. But mm-hmm. once polarization started to happen and, and the the wars started to get more fierce between left and right and between different kinds of Christianity, I looked back and I said, everybody I've ever sat with in pews was trying to do what God wants. They were trying to genuine seeking. It was, yeah, it was authentic seeking. And it's not that we're, I mean, we're all fallen, right? We're all uh, messed up a little bit, but, but I didn't see people saying, you know what? I know they're right, but we're going to make more money over here. Or I know they're right, but we're going to beat them anyway. It was everybody trying to get it right. And so when we started to divide starkly, uh, it, it became kind of incumbent on me to tell each side that the other wasn't trying to screw them, that, mm-hmm. that the other wasn't trying to do them wrong. And so I was in a, as I got ready to come to Princeton Seminary, um, I had gone to a Quaker college, George Fox College in Oregon, and was attending an evangelical Quaker church in, in town. And as I decided to come to Princeton, my worthy elders, uh, eight or ten of them, who had been mentors and spiritual guides, uh, walked me down into the church basement and where they had set chairs enough for all of us with grave looks on their faces and sat down and prayed for my salvation because I was going to liberal Princeton in the East. Right? Yeah, I had a similar experience Did before you? coming here as a student. They were so worried and, and worried, really worried. They weren't uh, trying to own me or anything. They, they worried for me. It was fear. a genuine concern for me. And then it was, I don't know, 10 years later, I was teaching at Yale Divinity School and over a faculty lunch, it was more facetious, but over a faculty lunch, uh, somebody decided they were going to pray us into our, our lunch. And, and they said, thank you for the food. And, and you know, we can take all kinds of things, oh, Lord, but please don't let there be any evangelicals in the incoming class. Mm-hmm. Right. And these two prayers have kind of marked out the tug of war that, that is my life as a Christian. And it makes me more aware because, because these great, uh, these Yale Divinity School faculty weren't bad people. They were great people who had helped me a lot too. So there was nobody bad in this picture, mm-hmm. but they had been trained to be suspicious of the other yeah, and even to disdain the other. And you had a unique position where you were forced to sit in that middle place. Yeah, that's where I've sat uh, throughout. And, and so the book is a product of that. Um, it, it is, it is. Uh, born of a place that sees the credence and and the worth of each side of these arguments. So you point out that in the 20s, the church was already divided deeply down conservative and liberal lines. Has that evolved over the decades? You've talked about this a little bit earlier. So I, in the book, I, I start with J. Gresham Machen and Harry Emerson Fosdick, because I lived in Machen's room in Alexander Hall at Princeton Seminary. Uh, 
just accidentally assigned to it. And uh-huh. so I think somewhere in me, I had yeah, to go yeah. and, f- and we read Christianity and liberalism in church history my first yeah. year here. So who is he? Jay Gresham Machen. Your historical roommate. Yeah, yeah. Jay Gresham Machen is a f- most famous for a an introductory New Testament Greek book that a lot of generations have, of Greek students have used. But but in the 20s and 30s, he was most famous for being a, uh, a strong voice from the fundamentalist side of Christianity. And he was a professor at Princeton who became more and more uneasy with and more and more frustrated at what he saw as a progressive tilt that was moving people away from pure Christianity. And so he wrote this book, Christianity and Liberalism, which, I mean, think about the title and the two sets are exclusive of one another. So you're either a Christian or you're a liberal. And and he he believed that, and so he left Princeton Seminary's faculty and went and began with a, a group of others, Westminster uh, Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Which is currently affiliated with the PCA, PSA, the Presbyterian yeah, PCA, Church yeah, of America. That's right. And and so that's one of the, and and I don't call them founding fathers of polarization, but, but you might, right? Um, on the other side of this is Harry Emerson Fosdick, the great preacher from uh, New York City, three or four pulpits in New York City, culminating in Riverside Church. And uh, he preaches a, a consistently progressive gospel and is frustrated by, and sometimes hounded at the time, by a, a fundamentalist movement within the Presbyterian Church nationwide. But when he talks about inclusion, he prides himself on his congregation's inclusive attitudes and how, um, but, but then in, in, his, in one of his uh, sermons, in a sermon called Shall the Fundamentalist Win?, hmm. he reflects it's on about the... winning and losing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so he reflects positively and proudly on the fact that you won't find one of those uninclusive fundamentalists in our congregation. And he thinks that's an inclusion sign. But in our time, we know that the difficulty for inclusive folk is including what they might think is the non-includer. Um, there's a, so if, if we do a big arc from Machen and, and Fosdick and the battles, the fundamentalist liberal controversy, over to our current situation, uh, there is a, a, a rub or a tension that becomes a battle between inclusion of one sort namely uh, racial, ethnic, sexual, gender inclusion, and political inclusion on the other. Uh, college campuses are blowing up with this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Berkeley can't have Ann Coulter come. Middlebury can't have Charles Murray come. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heather McDonald can't go to uh, Claremont McKenna because... Which are theoretically liberal. They're which liberal. Which you would assume would be open space for debate. And... That's right, but they shout down conservative speakers because they're inclusive, but they're inclusive of the sort that is inclusive of ethnic and racial and, and sexual-oriented and gender-oriented people. And, and that bars the person who dissents from that mm-hmm. position or any part of it. And, and so it's the, it's the AP Christian question of our time. How do we bring those two together, right? Yeah. And, and the thesis of the book is that we've got a far better chance if we come to the table together and bring bring our the variety of perspectives so that we gain from them all right difference as an asset rather than a threat so so you've got 
you've got the fundamentalist liberal controversy moving through to a time when evangelicalism kind of retreated into uh, evangelism for a while. Billy Graham made many, many converts, but you wouldn't have called them a political movement at the time. So almost all of this stretch happened in the church, right? Some impact on the outer world, but in the church. It's not until the culture wars of the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s that you get it um, kind of overlapping so much as political and theological polarization. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a ton of overlap now. There is. There is. Um, You mentioned earlier echo chambers. Yeah. And I anticipate that most people listening, um, as well as you and I, probably live in some sort of echo chamber, whether that's intentional or unintentional. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic and what some of the implications of that are? Yeah. Do you know, after the last election, uh, we saw a whole lot of exit polls and other studies that showed that people from the country and people from the city clearly, clearly didn't know each other. They read different books. They listened to different news. They had different experience. They, they, they just couldn't fathom one another's positions. And that's only that geographical difference is only the latest in ways that we sort ourselves. Um, a guy named Bill Bishop wrote a book called The Big Sort, which tracks how we choose neighborhoods that fit our political affiliations. And we actually nudge people out if they don't, right? They, so we pick by neighborhood, we pick by church, right? You, you go into a church on Memorial Day, and you can pretty much tell within 10 minutes whether you're welcome there or not. If they're singing Onward Christian Soldiers, then they're conservative and they welcome you if you're conservative. If they're singing um, a, a mourning song about uh, about the fact of war in the first place, it's pretty clear that you may not be uh, a patriot or a conservative may not be welcome there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we sort ch- through churches. We, mm-hmm. we sort in, in all the ways that we take in uh, media, and, and then we also sort in the ways we gather. So we end up unable to understand one another. One of the prescriptions within, within the book, and, and a lot of people have landed on this, so it's not novel to me, but varying i have a place in the book where i talk about needing a new algorithm when you go on when you go on amazon.com it immediately tells you what you want by on the basis of what you've already ordered and so you're kind of offended if they get it wrong yeah that's you're right like, i would never buy that I, book with how did shoes. they put me in this crowd how and <laughs> clearly and, that is not yeah, me they aren't my tribe right i mean it's it's very interesting the but but they they imagine that I will be uniform in my desires, and news sorts that way. So if I go on to a news feed, it'll keep feeding me the people I read. Yeah. So the more you consume BuzzFeed, yeah, the more you're fed BuzzFeed. That's right. Right. Or and, pick and, whatever outlet. And that's only on newsfeed. Now put it on Twitter, and now put it right. So social media as well as as wide media, and so we end up if we don't watch out, we end up so. Um, indulging in the same news perspectives that we become less and less able to understand the person across the room from us or across the neighborhood or and so the prescription is i want to design an algorithm that that that's called a difference algorithm and and so if you've read two paul krugmans in a row it it throws in a Ross Douthat, or if you've read two liberals in a row, it throws in a conservative, uh, vice versa, so that so you're challenged to question your assumptions, right? We can do that just as easily as we do the 
the likeness one, but people like the likeness one more, mm-hmm. and it's more of a an inconvenience and a and a challenge. Well, we love to, reading things, and we love being affirmed in our we love beliefs. Amen, right? Yeah, yeah. it's it, it's pep rallies, right? Mm-hmm. We love pep rallies for what we already think, and it's the road not taken to say, "Well, I'm going to go slum with those people having the opposite pep rally," uh, and and figure out why, right? And I assume that often when we read something that differs from our preconceived notions or our belief system, um, that our initial reaction is just strongly against yeah. rather than what can I learn from or a posture, a different posture. Yeah. Um, so since there isn't going, Facebook, I assume, or Amazon isn't going to design this algorithm. Right. So how might one uh, self-inflict yeah. An algorithm like that. Yeah, you can craft your own news feed, right? I I get Fox News Weekly Standard, a uh, couple of others on the on the right, and I get uh, Huffington Post and uh, New York Times op-ed and a couple others on the left. Um, so you can you can balance your diet intentionally. And on my on my iPhone, I just get a steady stream of those things, and I have to watch it because if I if I happen on a week to be doing a lot of Fox News consult, right? Trying to figure out what they're doing over there. I'll get more Fox News because that's the way it works. And then I end up imbalanced even though my, my sources are balanced. But that's, that's one way to do it. Another is, uh, st- strangely enough, to, and let's, let's move from the political to the, to the theological, uh, for churches to sit in the same room. Two churches that disagree with one another. I call it Christian Mingle. That's a dating service, mm-hmm. um, uh, online dating service, and I, I'm sure I'll get sued um, for using their name at some point. But <laughs> well, let's um, hope not. <laughs> yeah, hopefully you won't get sued for me uh, using their name. Um, but the the idea or the ideal really is to say, okay, we don't do the same thing that you do, and and we believe what we believe, but we also believe that you're our brothers and sisters, and we believe we've got a better shot at finding truth if we're in the same conversation. So you, we may be in different churches on Sunday, but we're going to go do mission together. Could you tell or, me a story about somebody yeah. who maybe inspires you yeah. or who is embodying this in a unique way? Yeah, so uh, maybe a decade ago, a little over, a guy named Eric Elms, um, who was the pastor at a Scottsdale United Church of Christ, liberal uh, progressive church, uh, wanted the world to know that there was progressive Christianity and that it had viability and wanted to know that conservative Christianity wasn't the only option because in those days especially, a lot of conservative churches and speakers were getting press and not much from the, from the uh, progressives. And so he developed what's called Crosswalk America in which he and some other members of his church and I think some people from outside decided they were going to walk from Scottsdale to, uh, to Washington, D.C., Wow. Uh, to be seen, right? To, and they had publicity uh, plans, and, and they were going to say that we believe that Jesus is uh, the way, but not the only way we believe. So some progressive, uh, they call them the Phoenix aff- Affirmations, some progressive main, uh, main thoughts and main doctrines. And so they started, and most of the time, they, uh, they stopped in a community and stayed in, in uh, among people who were from the progressive churches in town, which, by the way, there aren't many blue states between Scottsdale and D.C., so they had yeah. to find minority uh, minority liberals or minority progressives. But when they got to the edge of Arizona going into New Mexico, 
they, Eric decided we're going to find the most fundamentalist church in town and just go visit them. And so he did. It was Jesus First Baptist Church in mm-hmm. Eager, Arizona. Southern Baptist or? Uh, yeah. And, and so, so it's got flag, American flags in each corner of the Yellow Pages ad. That was back when there was a Yellow page, uh, mm-hmm. Pages. And so Eric says, we'll go here. And out of his many walkers, only one other would go with him, right, because they were scared. They, they were worried that they'd get there and there would be some, if not violence, they would be ostracized, right? right? Mm-hmm. So they go and the, the pastor uh, looks like your typical kind of fundamentalist pastor. He's dressed like your typical, he comes to the door with a Bible under his arm and everything. And he says, come on in. And they, they hand him some literature because he asked for it, and they walk into a Bible study on the Revelation, Book of Revelation and, and the End of Time, which they would never study in their home church. But they, they're a little awkward with that, but the, the people are nice to them and, and welcome them. They get into church, and they expect the worst. They expect vegetables will fly. They expect somehow they're going to be made fun of. Um, mm-hmm. Pastor gets up, and he says, I want you to welcome with me two people who are walking across America for Jesus. And Eric and Leslie just can't believe it. Like that, that's a shocking introduction yeah. from somebody that they expect to be opposed to them. Yeah, yeah. Because, because these are the infidels, right? These are the left-wing infidels, uh, Eric and Leslie are, at least in the world that's usually set up. And likewise for Eric and Leslie, these are the right-wing infidels. Yeah, yeah. And there's not supposed to be any common ground. We're just hopefully, hope, uh, hopefully they're hoping to come out with tolerance, right? We, we don't hurt each other in this hour, right? But instead, this guy says, two people who are... He goes to common ground, who are walking across, uh, across America for Jesus. Eric, can you introduce your, your project to us? So Eric stands up, and later he confided with me over lunch one time, I would never have given that guy my pulpit, right? Yeah. So Eric stands up as a progressive and says, we believe that Jesus is, is one way to God, not the only way. We believe that God blesses both heterosexual and homosexual unions. We believe, and go through the whole kind of line of things. And he expects that there will be uh, this sort of rancor, and the people just listen. It's obvious they don't agree, but they just listen. And then the pastor says, it's time for worship. Let's all sing. And, they say, and he says, let's, let's put Leslie and, and Eric in the middle and grab hands and sing, shine, Jesus, shine. Right? And so here's this fundamentalist church shouting out, shine, Jesus, shine, with these two liberals in the middle befuddled by what's going on. He goes on to preach, this pastor goes on to preach uh, uh, four or five times mentioning how positive this is. And at the end of the service, which is always when Baptists take the collection, he says, if, if you will give me permission, I want us to give today's offering to Crosswalk America as they go across. Right? Mm. And then they go out on the lawn, they have a picnic. That's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. And those things happen. They're rare, and that's uh, the exception kind of proves the rule. But when they happen, they bring tears to our eyes, right? They bring uh, goosebumps to our neck because we know there's truth there. We know that the good stuff lies in engaging across difference. But we're a little lazy, and we're a little scared, and so we don't do it. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Sherry Osting. On our production and research team, we have Garrett Mostowski and Nee Otto Abrahams. Christy Holly works the creative design angle. From the whole team at Princeton Seminary, thanks for listening.